Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. The power sector as a whole is underrated for it. Of course, it is the major focus and standalone. If you just look, you know, at an isolated effect, you're actually not fixing a very big part of the problem. But the world is built on energy, right? And, you know, if you can manage to, you know, create abundance amount of energy efficiently in the electricity sector, then I'm sure that subsequent effects it will have on other sectors will be mind-blowing. Uh, and also, you know, if you see what hydrogen really manages to do, is that it manages to merge the gas market with the power market. And if you do that, I can't remember the exact full, but then the power market probably just grew with, uh, you know, eight times or something like that. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Feddersen, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And my guest on the show today is a partner at one of the leading clean energy investors globally, having recently raised an enormous 7 billion euro fund for clean energy investment. He's a veteran of Europe's offshore wind boom of the past decade, and he's a deep expert on the emerging energy transition in the US, currently New York City-based and developing projects across many of North America's energy markets. My guest on the show today is Henrik Tordrup, partner at Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. Welcome, Henrik. Thanks, John. Thanks for joining me. And just out of interest, and I'm not, I'm not planning on doing this anytime soon, but how hard is it to raise a €7 billion Euro fund in clean energy at the moment? Where are the challenges? Um, uh, no, I think it's... Um uh, not to neglect, uh, you know, the, the efforts, right? And I think our team has worked really, really hard in, in, in achieving it. But I think, you know, a lot of, uh, we had a lot of tailwind behind us when doing this. And, and then, of course, it's significantly easier to raise a 7 billion fund when you have successfully started with a 1 billion, moving to 2 billion, moving to 3.5 billion. So, so I, I think, you know, on a standalone, it's, of course, a massive achievement. But, uh, but of course, with the journey we've been on and the track record we have delivered, I think for from a relative scale, it was um, uh, we had a lot of things going uh, with us, also with COVID and everything, and uh, and the increased focus on ESG and, and our position in the market. That uh, that uh, that I think we uh, I think that the team can be very proud of what they managed to achieve in a in a relatively short time period. Yeah, interesting. Now you just need to deploy it, I suppose. So the, the exactly, the, 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 I think that will be more difficult. <laughs> but, uh, but let's see. Um, so can I start with your journey, Henrik? And I, I find it interesting, you know, you, you cut your teeth in Europe, in Denmark, in, in, uh, in the British markets, those types of things, and you've moved to the US. Why did you decide to do that? No, so I think we were, um, you know, in the mid part of the, of the last, uh, the last uh, decade, we were, um, we were uh, you know, Europe returns were really coming down, you know, our funds at the return requirements we had struggled uh, finding investment opportunities in um, 
in in Europe. And then I think you know this was around you know the yield co crash in the US where we started you know to get a lot of inbounds from there. And and we had you know touched here and there the US market. And then with that, I, I signed up to say, you know, you know, I, I can put my focus on, on trying to, you know, start from a clean slate uh, in the U.S. and see what we're able to find. And then and then from there, you know, we got going by buying the first couple of, you know, really development, you know, assets. We got involved in a couple of projects that, that actually never happened. But that was where we learned a lot about the markets. It's often the difficult, complicated ones where you build up the learnings, right? And, you know, they never happened, but we never really put any money into them. But so they were, they were a good learning ground for, for getting us off, getting us going. And then it just, you know, it just took off, right? I think, you know, at least at that point in time, a lot of people uh, talked about, you know, renewables doesn't really happen in the US, but when you really got in to see it, you know, on a quantitative scale, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a much, much uh, bigger market for us with how our funds are designed and how big they have become where we have to do big projects for it to really fit our envelope. The Europe is a, uh, the, the US is a, is a, is a, you know, very, very well, well-sized market for, for what we're doing. And that, I think that's also why we've been very successful taking some of the experience from Europe, bringing it over here. And, and then, you know, manage to have, you know, the, 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 the flexible capital and, and the experience to get a lot of stuff done in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it is interesting. I think, I think, and we may get to this as sort of, you know, the, the Biden administration, the, ch- you know, change of president seems to have given the, the renewable industry a lot of impetus. But there were a few people who, you know, to, to, to go in partway through the, you know, the Trump presidency when, you know, the pitch was we're going to return to coal, you know, coal miners' jobs are going to boom again, I think took a little bit of foresight by the, by the people who entered at that particular time. What is it? I mean, do you, do you see yourself, you know, keeping yourself busy in the U S over the medium term and, and what is it that excites you most about uh, the, the U S the U S energy markets at the moment? No, no, I, I, I for sure think I will, uh, I will stay quite busy on, on the U S I think it is our, it is our biggest market, biggest market already. And I think it will continue to be so for, uh, for the, you know, uh, short to medium future and then then we have to see how the world develops in more you know developing markets if that, if that will take over the us but i think you know the the us and europe it, it's um i think you've seen it many times through history right that europe gets going quicker in a more you know steady slope where the us they you know lag behind and then you know they just go exponentially and then and then they get going and then they maybe overbuild a little bit uh, from time to time and then it crashes and then they get going again right and, and i think that's what you'll see here too. So I think a lot of innovation in certain parts of the energy transition will happen in the US and, and, uh, you know, um, the momentum behind it over here, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really strong. Yeah, it is. It's kind of, you know, Biden was elected on a zero carbon power sector by 2035 and some of the ambition, you just kind of think, you know, wow, but maybe they'll do it. Uh, So we we will, we will see certainly signs of intent early on. The the other part of your journey I I wanted to ask about you. So you were at um, Dong before it was Orsted. Uh, And I think a theme that's come up on this podcast in the past is, you know, the, the, in a sense, the magic of ch- turning from a hydrocarbon-focused company into one that is, you know, entirely renewables. I, I haven't seen too many places it's been replicated. People have talked about the benefits of state ownership and the cocoon that that provides, or the scale and the fact that you're you're not on the scale of a Shell or a BP in doing it. 
Did you feel now you were you were at Dong before it was Orsted? Did you feel this change coming culturally within the organization? Is the fact that it happened as much of a surprise to you as someone on the inside uh, as it would be to someone on the outside? Do you think? No, I mean from the inside it wasn't a, it wasn't a surprise. It probably happened to be honest a little bit quicker than than, than I had anticipated, but. Uh, but I think that's also a lot that the cost trajectory in particular for offshore just went faster than, than I had also expected when I was sitting there, right? So I think, you know, it was, you know, from when I started uh, back in the day as a junior there, you know, um, renewables was a niche business, right? And, you know, but was something that was, you know, for sure being taken serious, but was still a niche business. And, you know, I remember when, when, when I started, we were looking at building a new coal-fired power plant in Northern Germany, which, which obviously ended up getting scrapped and how the momentum changed so quickly there. And then it quickly became that it was oil and gas and renewables, but you could feel that you know, oil and gas didn't really get allocated new capital. And then you know, things run its own cost when, when all the new capital goes to a certain place. And then the business started growing from there. So while I was there, uh, you know, I think, you know, renew the renewables business went from being an ancillary business of the power business to be its own business unit and ultimately be, uh, you know, more than a thousand people when uh, when when me and a lot of my colleagues left to uh, to start up CIP. Yeah, and would you give, do, do you give, I mean, part of that, a big part of that transition was offshore wind. Do you give the British government, and maybe I'm trying to channel, you know, credit to the British government where it's not due, but do you give the British government and it's, philosophy around offshore wind and support credit for enabling that transaction or uh, that transition or do you think it, it would have happened irrespective uh no i think they they for sure have some credit for it right i think i'll also give a lot of uh, compliments to the to the ceo at that point in time of, of Astor and also the danish government saying that you know denmark had to be a key player and it's also driven by by all of the export that denmark has has benefited from and was well positioned to benefit from at that point in time but of course uh, I think the UK had been a bumpy road from a political perspective when it comes to offshore wind. I think, you know, similar to, I guess, the onshore story of America, right? With stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. And and also resulted in, you know, ultimately the UK not getting enough, you know, local businesses out of their venture into offshore because it was too much stop, go. But nonetheless, I mean, they for sure, you know, got it going. They achieved the scale that was needed to do an industrialized approach to offshore wind that really brought down the cost. And you know, also the capital inflow at a speed that it, that enabled where we are today. I think they do for sure deserve some credit for that. Yeah, that story of the of British companies is a really interesting one. I, I was having a conversation recently. You know, Centrica had the lease on vast swathes of the Irish Sea. You know, the ones that BP just paid a yeah. lot of money for in terms of leasing gave them up. You know, SSE obviously retreated to, to Dogger Bank in the UK, which is you know potentially enormous potential. But um, it's it's a good point. We talk about the British policy success, but certainly some 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 missed tricks along the way as well. It it, it seems. But yes, yeah, stop start stop start is is better than stop, uh, which is what you yeah, would say for, sure. for, for potentially CCS for sure. and some of the other the other technologies as well. Um, one other question on this: Do you think do you have confidence that the super majors in oil and gas can follow the? the dong approach and 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 make the pivot that's at least the shells and the bps if not the exons of this world seem to be uh, attempting at the moment i think they have you know they have certain benefits and certain disadvantages right i think 
I think in a world that is turning into, which I would say it's not really the case for offshore yet, but it's turning into be a more merchant world. I think, you know, there's massive benefits of being a well-diversified companies within all sorts of, you know, commodities and also on a global scale, where I think they have unique benefits over somebody like Rastel. But I do think that they will struggle with the same level of, um, you know, innovation, agility and speed that a company that, that is so focused on, as Rastel can do, right? Because I think, I mean, I'll, I'll give them, um, of course, I'm biased, but I'll give them a lot of credit that they're they're for sure good at good at what they do. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And and the vertical, the sort of fuel fuel part of it seems relevant as well. We'll talk about um, yeah. Texas later on, hopefully, and and the implications coming out of that. But certainly, uh, a lot of the a lot of the you know fossil fuel companies and suppliers seem to have been the ones that did the best out of that particular uh, incident when there was a, a deep freeze in in Texas in February. So if I could move the CIP story and away from your story, what do you, so CIP to me, at least, you know, it's in that space of big renewables fund managers like BlackRock and others like that. But it, at least from the outside, feels like it has a sort of Danish, Danish culture to it or a European culture to it. What is it about CIP that's enabled it? To succeed, you know, was it all timing? Was it um, a particular set of skills coming together? Was it the culture, or the, or the, or the, even the location as a big organization in a in a relatively small country? I guess it's never a single thing. It's a combination of many things, you know, playing together with at the right point in time with the right skills. But I think what what we've been really really good at, and what we've been trusted to do by our investors, um, uh, is is that you know we came from the industry ourselves, right? You know, we came with a deep understanding of, uh, you know, development of, you know, how it is to construct a plant, operate a plant and so forth. And by doing that, I think we've been very successful at all the time, you know, you know, moving in the value chain to places where less people were focusing. And then by, you know, how the world have developed where, you know, these assets in particular, when they're up and running up, are becoming, you know, more and more, um, more and more attractive for people to own and you know the influx of that money has you know uh, has just enabled us to have great success because we've all the time you know that i mean we when we took construction risk when no other financial investors could take construction risk and then when they were allowed to do that then we started taking some development risk and then we took a little bit earlier development risk and and and, and i think that's that's what we've been good at you know having uh you know the foresight and a bit of luck i guess along the way and in, in all the all the time uh you know, focusing on where, where, you know, there were, you know, less, less competition for capital. So that's yeah. also why, I mean, we are, we are super focused. I think it goes many of the other fund managers you talk about, right. They are more conglomerates within the fund management business, right. Where we are uh, probably one of the most, uh, you know, narrow focused investment companies in the world, right. We, we only do energy and, uh, you know, we, we can do non-renewables, but we to date have only done renewables, right. So. And we're in the projects, Greenfield project market. So, yeah, interesting. So, power sector experts clearly not a specialization on a particular geography. Does that mean, as you think about your strategy going forward, um, you think a reasonable place to chase yield would be, you know, frontier markets and new geographies, or will you be focusing more on? The sorts of things you've done in the past, which is new types of development, new types of construction risk, uh, ones that the market isn't yet ready to take on. I think it will be a combination of of it, and depends a little bit on on uh, on uh, 
what technology we're looking at, right? You know, I besides the US, I spend a lot of my time, you know, on a global scale to fund our, you know, what you would call grid parity efforts. So, you know, everything that is unsubsidized. And and in that category, I think that is by nature the more established markets where you're thinking out, figure, figuring out, you know, is that a private transmission or some sort of a storage solution, whatever it is, or a combination of many things that is the right product for the market. And then I think, you know, some of my colleagues that are more focused globally uh, on offshore wind, um, that I think they're, they're very frontier market focused, right, which is also proven by the, the amount of uh, offshore pipeline we've been managed to build, where, where I do think we have the largest, you know, offshore wind pipeline outside of Europe by, uh, by anybody, right, where we've been very successful in our approach to set it up and, you know, get people to move out and, you know, hire local talent and so forth to, to get established in some of the markets that I think often can be more challenging to do if you are in the belly of a big corporate. And how do you think about just a, a deep dive on that. How do you think about policy risk? I mean, when you talk about offshore wind frontier markets, I mean, we're not talking about, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking about Japan, Taiwan, uh, the state of Victoria in Australia, uh, which um, which is one of my favourite offshore markets, not least because that's where I'm, where I'm from, but I think they have huge potential. How do you think, you know, Victoria, Australia, you, it may never happen. You know, you might, you might be in a world in which... Um, yeah, there's sufficient space, you know, on onshore wind is enough uh, and it's slow to move. The same with Japan, it's sort of the market's been liberalising for the last 20 years, but, you know, we're, 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 you know we're, we're still going there. How do, you, how do you think about managing that sort of policy risk when, you know, you're, you're taking out leases and it may just never, never turn up, unlike in, in European markets? No, but I think, I mean... With that, as with everything else, I mean, there's a lot about having scale and diversification, right? You should, if you put all your money in a single project, I mean, you know, of course, everything will not work out. So you need you need to uh, need to place your bets and you need to have a portfolio. And then I think it's a matter of seeing, you know, what is rationally the right thing to do. And then as it is in politics, you know, um, things can go up and down and the rational doesn't always happen short term. But long term, uh, at least in most parts of the world, uh, the rational argument uh, tends to win, right? And I think that's where we're well positioned with the structure of our funds. And I think that's that's something we've been really, really good at is to set up fund structures that can enable us to to play in this industry, which historically has been difficult for like short term focus funds and so forth, because sometimes you need to be able to go in and and simply be patient, right? And that's easier if you have a bigger portfolio because then you will have something that runs through according to the fund time time cycles, right? And and, and sometimes you have to roll it on to a to a new fund or do it late in the fund cycle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how are you thinking about hydrogen? So what, one more question on CIP strategy. You're focusing, as I understand, heavily on hydrogen. You're raising capital around deployment into hydrogen. One of the things I hear a lot of, then Aurora has a sort of European hydrogen product. It's been hugely successful, lots of subscribers. Whenever we hold a WebEx, hundreds of people turn up and, and jump on it. And yet the number of, but, but the question I get most is where are the where are the executable opportunities in hydrogen in Europe? Um, so huge excitement, but from what I can see, relatively little action, particularly if you're not sort of already an industrial player in Germany or whatever it is. How are you thinking about taking opportunities in the hydrogen space at the moment? No, but but I think it's important to, um, I think, you know, if, if, you're, if you're driven by, you know, I need to have something in the ground next year, it's a difficult market to operate in, right? So I think it's a matter of 
you know, finding the right way to plant the right diversified pocket of seeds around in those right markets where there is also, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that has to be worked out before these things really get off the ground. But where are, you know, the right fundamentals to do it? And where is the political support to get it going right? And then, and then you know, when the first have gotten gone, have got have got going, then the next will be easier, and the the ones after that will be very very easy, right? I mean, that that's how these markets take off. But I think we've just, I think it's been seen, you know, throughout the last 20, 30 years, you know, in, in other parts of asset classes in this this whole sector we're in, right? And I think we are. There are certainly many things that are very, very different here. You know, logistics are different. You know, the offtake market is completely different and it's not a non-recourse world to the same extent as powers. But I think there are still many, you know, of um, industry dynamics that are similar from where you, you can draw many learnings and, and you know, uh, and from there try to, you know, uh, build successful projects. So, but, but I think it, it's a matter of um, having access to a big enough portfolio that is also geographically diversified a little bit depending on you know what is the political move in different parts of the world right okay interesting so so i would in, in on that sort of last point it would be reasonable to infer that at least this first wave as it has been for a whole bunch of other technologies government will have a big role to play you think and so you know you need to understand the economics but you also need to understand the the, the political winds um, which way exactly, and I, exactly, and I think sometimes you know it's not like the government needs to write a big check necessarily, right? But maybe they need to amend the regulation so it's actually feasible to get a project done, right? And I think it's it's so it's it, it's stuff like that, and just I just you know out of experience, some jurisdictions that are you know uh, you know where it's a higher thing on the, on the agenda to get this to do, they will do those things that cost them nothing but requires work. Where in other places, you know, even though it costs them nothing. There's just different interests. You can't get them to do it for a, in a short order, right? I think it's some of those things. It's not necessarily that it needs, you know, massive economic support. I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, and I think it, it will be a different dynamic than, uh, than uh, you know, the power, the renewable power business will build out, was built out. But, um, but there's still, you know, there's a need for clarification of many things along the way. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. The, do you ever, I sometimes have this concern, and I, you know, I've been talking to, a number of utilities leaders in Europe about this concept of a just transition, right? And it's a slightly vague concept. You know, politicians like the idea of a just transition because it speaks to jobs and it speaks to kind of regional development and, 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 and you know, it, it tells coal communities not to get too worried about jobs being displaced. And, and the sort of, the, 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 from the utilities, the narrative is something like this. Um, okay, historically we were, whoever it is, historically we were um, burning coal and gas, we're moving into renewables, we're predominantly in renewable, you know, you could say the same for Iberdrola or or, um, or RWE or, or uh, SSE or NL or any of these big utilities. And sort of historically we were in there. Now there's a bunch of legacy assets that are running um, and it's not as simple as just turning our back on fossil fuels and doing renewables. We need to run these things for another five or 10 years, not least of all because we need to keep the lights on, but also because, you know, we need to transition these regions that depend on these jobs to the new energy world, the net zero world that that, that we've, we've committed to. And I wonder, is there this tension that there are huge buckets of capital um, and I think you said before CIP doesn't necessarily fall into this camp, but which are purely focused on renewables. And, and I just wonder, do, do you see a risk that, you know, as these buckets of capital expand, 
you know, these legacy industries that are important for, you know, social reasons end up, you know, no one wanting them. Uh, Possibly there's a sort of buyer of last resort. It's a bit like the tobacco industry in a sense. And that hampers the just transition in a sense. And I say it from the perspective of someone who, I don't know, probably eight out of 10, nine out of 10 investment funds I talk to say, you know, we won't, you know, we won't touch investments in any fossil fuels. Do you see a risk there? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think there's a fair risk, right? I think, you know, uh, I mean, as, as I mentioned, you know, we, we can do um, non-renewables uh, in principle, but we haven't done it. And I don't think there's a strong desire from our LPs to do it, right? And I think there's a massive push from the investor community for, you know, renewables and ESG over everything, right? So I think there's, um, there's for sure a capital flight from that. So I, I, I understand where you're coming from with the concern. I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, spent too much brain capacity on trying to figure out how, how the whole thing will actually play out. But, uh, but I think you see it and you also see it. I mean, you also see it on the, on the, you know, uh, employment market, you know, people coming to places like us because they, they are in these funds and, and, you know, it's people struggle finding new capital and so forth. So I think a lot of it, there's always going to be buyers and it's probably just going to be different types of capital than, than, you know, big institutionals. It's probably, you know, smaller smaller setups that are more controlled by single individuals and so forth yeah yeah and and possibly in that case there's a bigger role for government to ensure that yeah. you know we're not just optimizing narrowly for the for the you know lifetime of the plant or the profitability yeah. For, for yeah. Broader, broader but, but then i think there's a lot about you know i think there's a lot about energy transition to think through with some of this old infrastructure how can it be used in an intelligent and smart way in the new system, right, where I think there America is doing much better than Europe, in my personal opinion, right, where with the, the raw market power of, you know, all this stuff exists, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of money in it and it's very expensive to take down. How do you find the right way to use it in the new world? And I think if you have a system where, you know, transmission cables are, you know, pulled out and, you know, there are existing stations around, even though they're poorly located, it, 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 it has the rationality against it if it's not used, right? Because, you know, transmission, also if you, you know, do a total cost, is, is a massive cost to the system, right? And not using transmission that's already built is, uh, does, not, does not seem right. So, uh, so I, I think, you know, with the right uh, innovation and uh, focus on some of these topics, I, I think, you know, that's probably a, a good argument for why you still uh, you should be open to invest in some of these things. Um, and then maybe the short-term business is not so ESG, but the long-term business actually is because it's how you repurpose and move these types of facilities into the, into the new world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the, yeah, the, the precision and the, and the data with which we talk about ESG um, I think I agree with you is, is an enabler of some more nuanced investment decisions that are, are probably good for, for, for society. Do you, just one, one final question on CIP. What, what you see a lot of markets, you, you know, you're more active probably than almost anyone around the world as a renewables investor. Is there like, is there one risk that more than anything keeps you up at night uh, that you worry about? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I don't know if it's like one risk, but of course things are moving so fast here. And you know, um, what what really happens in some of these, uh, you know, and we spoke about it before, uh, John. Right? What happens in some of these, you know, markets when uh, when you know the, the general supply and demand balances, uh, you know, goes out of check, uh, and 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 how does that how does that play out, right? Because there's no doubt about it. 
that you know from a societal value point of view you know um there is a risk of a delink between you know what what do you achieve and what is the value of what you deliver and i is there a need for so you know in different markets boom and bust cycles in order to justify that you actually get paid for what you deliver to society and and I think you don't want to get caught on the wrong side of one of those cycles. So I think that's probably what keeps me up at night. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, I think so. And, and I, I do think like the US is probably a bit more prone to that just because, you know, it's that classic European argument. You've got 30 odd countries all setting policies at different paces and it tends to self-regulate a bit. Uh, whereas, I mean, the great Australian example was wind in South Australia where, you know, federal scheme basically just dumped you know, 100% renewables capacity on a 3.5 gigawatt market. Uh, yeah. And it caused, it, you know, it caused substantial problems. And, and you look at the interconnection queue in certain US markets. I mean, that, that would probably be my big one in the US is just, yeah. is there is there more stuff than the, you know, whether it's solar, whether it's batteries, then the market can bear here and how are people thinking about it? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I'm also, you know, another thing is sometimes I think when you talk about that, I'm also a little bit worried about poorly, it goes in the same bucket, but poorly, poorly designed regulation that have you know very you know um, very obscure you know short term consequences for actually you know a slowdown of the transition long term. I think there is a little bit of a risk of that with politicians being too much of in a rush, and uh, uh, so uh, I think you see that you see that from time to time all over the world, but at different magnitudes. Interesting. And are you talking about a public acceptance type? risk there that that no i'm I'm more about like the incentives given out because some politician you know wants to have you know a a rapid impact right and then you do some things that you know seems right but long term it you know it it over incentivizes or gives the wrong incentives and then it destroys markets that were actually decently functioning um yeah so uh, and 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 that's very difficult you know to uh to model and forecast up front how those things play out yeah yeah indeed it's it's a topic for another time, but I do one thing that raises up my agenda at the moment in Europe is the network, and 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 you probably I, I mean being being in the US, obviously it's hard to build network, um, but with nodal pricing you get pretty good sing, signals. Um, in Europe we haven't had very strong signals. I think some Aurora work recently suggested the fundamental price difference between North and Southern Germany is maybe 10 euros. And it's sort of a disconnect between financial markets uh, and, and the socialization and some costs and the reality, at least to me, is rising up my risk, my, my kind of risk level in, in, in Europe as I, as, I, as I think about the, how, how we price the network uh, in general. Yeah. Um, it's not a bad segue, that, that point about um, incentives from government to to talk a little bit about our industry and, and a first question for me is and i and i i would normally leave this question for the end but i we may want to go deeper on it is do you think the role of markets in driving decarbonization is overrated or underrated you mean markets or you mean power markets in particular power markets sorry yeah power power, i suppose I, I suppose power markets and carbon markets would be the two that i'd be thinking about there no, I think it. I think you know, uh, if you take power market first, I probably think you know the power sector as a whole is a, is underrated for it. So I think you know, uh, of course, it is the major focus and standalone. If you just look, you know, at an isolated effect, you're actually not fixing a very big part of the problem. But the world is built on energy, right? And you know, if you can manage to you know create you know abundance amount of energy efficiently in the electricity sector, then then I'm sure that the you know subsequent effects it will have on other sectors will be mind-blowing. 
Uh, and also, you know, if you see with hydrogen, I think what hydrogen really manages to do is that it manages to merge the gas market with the power market. And if you do that, I, I can't remember the exact full, but then the power market probably just grew with, uh, you know, eight times or something like that, right? And yeah, I think, therefore the, therefore, the power market is underrated, in, in my personal opinion. And I think on carbon, um, I think carbon is also, uh, it's probably also, uh, uh, you know, the importance of it is, is underrated, but probably less for, for you know, incentivizing the power market build up. But I think it's more uh, for the consequences in society through proper carbon pricing into, you know, everything from, you know, uh, industrial products to, you know, in consumer products that, that I think can move uh, immense behavior and also, you know, immense, um, you know, uh, flexibility. I personally, I think that's more philosophical, but personally, I do think it with a, a proper introduction introduction of, of carbon pricing, I think you can see change behavior that can enable, you know, a very different load patterns that can enable much more renewables. If you then at the mm-hmm. same time had a, you know, proper priced electricity system where, where, you know, people, it's more, you know, fixed price, there's variable price, and then you know you can actually you know get get the load to be a little bit more flexible towards the supply. Yeah, and it's we we might be going through a bit of an experiment like that in Europe at the moment, where we're we're seeing sixty euro, sixty pound carbon prices per ton, uh, historical highs. I'm not sure yet if the market is fully taking a view on that as the long run outcome. There's there's certainly a lot of short term uncertainty but you imagine if that sticks around for a few years we'll start to see what you know credible long-term pricing does to people's behaviors people's yeah. long-term long-term investments i think it's, it will it exactly. will start to get normalized do you think europe will so you've got experience in nodal nodal markets uh now quite a lot do you think do you think Europe will go down some sort of nodal nodal route? Do you think we need, you know, policymakers at some point will decide we need more locational price signals in Europe than there currently are? I, I, I have to admit also I haven't focused on Europe to the same extent for that long. So it's not something I've given, you know, an immense amount of thought. I, uh, I would say there's for sure uh, pros and cons about both, right? And I, I sometimes I am... Um, I am probably also a little bit of the belief that if you really want to get, you know, this transition fueled the fastest, then maybe less subsidies, but more that, you know, um, that governments, you know, are, are better positioned to take some of these risks by the pure, you know, diversification and insurance benefit of being in, in the whole market compared to, you know, single people being in single assets. So I'm, I, uh, I, I, I'm sure people will play the, with the idea. I'm not sure it will gain traction because I think the Europe, Europe is more, you know, socializing by nature right and i think there's also you talked earlier about you know adjust adjust transition right i think it's also more um you can argue that it's less just if you do it nodal because then it, it depends a lot you know where do you live close to different things and so forth right so so I, I i don't see europe going all the way but maybe you know what will probably happen is that both markets will move a little bit closer to each other i imagine yeah yeah it's, and it, it's interesting how that that theme of, and it, it came up when I was talking to Greg Jackson, um, CEO of Octopus Group, uh, recently for the podcast. There's the sort of, okay, markets, hard to argue with in, on theoretical grounds. And in general, if they're functioning well and they're credible, that's a great basis for future investment. But there's also just this sense of we're trying to do an energy transition you know, at a certain speed. And do we trust markets to deliver it at the speed that 
that citizens and voters want and with the sorts of just outcomes that we want. And I'm not sure there's a huge amount of faith that markets are great for dictating the right pace and dictating the right social outcomes from this. And there's this, this tension that I that I see in this debate on a on a regular basis, which is which is around. It is. I mean, I mean, yeah. what we're trying to do here is to take an industry that would probably normally take a hundred years to get where it's going and do it all in forty, right? I mean, that's reality, and then therefore, um, I think uh, certain things you probably just have to do slightly different in that case. Yeah, and I think the number of pe- my sense is the number of people who would say markets are the answer once we reach the steady state would be very high, but the number that say markets are the answer over the next decade, I think is substantially lower for that, for that reason. Could I talk about US federal policy now? So uh, we talked a bit about Biden's policy, um, obviously the, the, the Green New Deal advocated by AOC uh, in, in the US has, has reasonably big audience, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the the uh, the Bernie Sanders sort of side of the Democratic Party as well in their views. What do you think the impact? Where do you see is the big impact of the the recent federal election for uh, for the decarbonisation agenda? Have things changed a lot? I think um, I think it's difficult to point exactly to you know concrete policy that makes a massive difference, right? I also think if you look at the old administration i don't think you know actually it had i don't think it had i mean we got a little bit blocked in some of our permitting stuff but otherwise i don't think it had a massive negative you know impact on the build-out i think the build-out was actually quite grand uh during during that era also i think it's more you know the change of sentiment uh you know overall this is something that's going to happen and it's you know sound business for it to happen and then when that momentum starts to build up it's like a catalyst for further development and you know innovation so I think I think it's more, you know, it's actually more the soft support of it than it's, you know, the tangible policy. But then, of course, I think there are some important things coming on the way that will, um, that will, you know, uh, you know, prove very important in, you know, stimulating, you know, a rap, a very rap, or you know, a more rapid build out and more rapid transition that otherwise would be the case. A little bit going back to what we just discussed a couple of minutes ago, right? Yeah, I- interesting. And I suppose, would you agree? There's sort of we'll know a lot more a year from now, you know, as, yeah, as legislative sure. processes. You know, it's a little bit too early. I think we'll know a lot. It's a little bit too early, right? And I think a lot of the stuff that comes out, you know, there's many stuff going around with different types of, you know, tax credits reform and so forth, right? And I think if you see some of the things that probably needs to get like a that's more important to get a big push. It's probably more important that you know storage and transmission and so forth gets a push than onshore wind and solar that are already quite cost competitive and and then, you know, focus on getting power markets to work a little bit more efficiently, how it interplays with regulation. I think if you can get some of those things fixed and fuel up and fuel, uh, fuel out uh, the, you know, the reliability of the system, which needs reform in, in many different aspects, if you can get that going, I, I think, you know, the U.S. is on a course to a very, very rapid transition. And also, uh, you know, I think they will overtake personally, you know, uh, Europe, you know, very, very quickly if they manage to do it correctly. Yeah, interesting. And for listeners that don't know the US market particularly well, the sort of politically feasible driver of low carbon investment has been tax credits historically. Um, now, 
Joe Biden's signature decarbonisation policy at the moment is a clean electricity standard, which is a little bit like a carbon car, carbon price, but it doesn't raise raise revenue directly for government. Uh, you know, that's one that it seems could 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 form a step change, and at least from an economic perspective, would be a more efficient approach. But so far, we've seen extensions of tax credits, tax credits for batteries. You know, in the in the offing uh, offshore wind, these types of things. So it has been a, a, at least a consistent policy so far with the with the past. Do you know why? I, so I asked this question to anyone who knows about US power markets. I still don't know the answer, but do you know why these sort of vertically integrated monopolies are still so popular popular in the US in sway? You know, the, the the big ones being in the southeast and the northwest. Why why do these market structures persist? What is desirable from a from a from a voter perspective in the US about them? I think fundamentally it's very desirable for the people who own these uh, regulated integrated utilities. And I think <laughs> and true. I think they managed and I think they managed to, you know, um they managed to hold on to it, hold on to it for a long time, right? And have not been forced to you know, like deregulate. I think fundamentally that's what it's about, right? Yeah. The political and, and, system is just different over here than what the, the, what we're used to in Europe. And the regulated returns are, you know, frankly, pretty insane in the US. They are insane. You know, They're insane. We're talking sort of high single digit percentage you know a rate based funded uh cost of capital on very low risk assets you know in europe in the you know, we're talking three three four two two three four percent for these yeah. f- similar assets it's um fully agree i also doubt i personally doubt it will continue to be sustainable but uh but let's see how it plays out it's uh sometimes yeah. it takes a long time to change things sometimes yeah, I mean, you, you, I, so I don't know. And all I, I mean, one example, and maybe maybe this is a good segue to the Texas storms, but it's sort of, you know, there's all sorts of things you could do to address, you know, the the lights going out in Texas when the when the temperatures drop, you know, at a sort of one in twenty year freeze event. One of the ones that got the most traction was Warren Buffett coming in and saying, "For you know, I'll, I'll spend eight or nine billion on uh, on a on a bunch of CCGT plants, uh, you know, for a for a rate based, you know, substantial single digit rate based return, uh, and that's the one getting the traction." So I, it's, it, you know, I, I suppose my 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 initial thinking was these things will go away, but it seems to be one of the front runners. And then someone else has popped up to offer the same sort of deal. So um, it, it it's it's liked for whatever reason. Anyway, yeah, I, I can I cannot fully get it either. It's um it's interesting in a in a you know a country that is so much more you know uh, more, I think Europe is also capitalistic in, in the end, right? But it's it's you know really a true true believer of hardcore capitalism. The, that whole part of society is is run significantly more socialistic than uh, than it is in Europe, which is which is very interesting. It's so I, I found it so surprising entering the US of those regulated return businesses. It's comparison with you know uh, Premier League football versus you know sports in America, right? It's uh, it's a little bit the same. It's, uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it's the two the two industries that are run like a like a like a um, like a socialism, right? It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. Um, do you just on that Texas big freeze storm Yuri a massive deal uh, you know hu- hu- humongous five days with the lights out are there any lessons there coming out of that for policymakers for renewables investors um I think for policymakers there must be a lot of lessons right I think you know uh, the cost to society of such an event is a uh, is abundant right and I think you know uh, 
And I think, you know, on people on the uh, on, on the other side, right, I think it, it's clear that, you know, if you were a winner or a loser, was probably primarily driven by pure luck, right? Uh, I think, you know, uh, was your note frozen over or not, right? I mean, it, it was, it was in, in the end, it was probably pure luck uh, or unlock, depending on what side of the equation you were on. But I think for me, uh, the big learning is also, you know, um, that it probably has been overcomplicated you know, through the financial structures invented and the financial products to try to de-risk some of this because nobody wanted to write more straightforward contracts have overcomplicated it. And then you've tried to patchwork and patchwork and patchwork the systems. And then you end up in these, you know, you know, one out of a hundred, now maybe even one out of a thousand, you know, type events that has massive consequences that are, you know, uh, that, that it's, you know, if you're forced to look at it, you'll say, yeah, but the probability of it happening is so low. But it's just, you know, it's just a system with too many intermediates that are over, that has created a level of complexity that, you know, feels unintended consequences where, where you know, um, which doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. And I think it's something you have to be wary of as an investor. Yeah. But I actually, you know, somehow it was good that it happened now rather than happening 10 years ago. Uh, you know, so, you know, there's a little bit of a reset and uh, of, of how these things are set up going forward. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, good. So a couple of questions on renewable, on our industry as far as it relates to kind of deployment of renewables. So one question I have here is you talked about CIP's focus on development risk and expertise there. Just a couple of things have popped up in the offshore wind space. I think you know, last year we had Orsted on wake losses. Recently we've had, um, you know, cable, you know, billions of, billions of dollars worth of cables. I mean, are we still working out what it costs to build and operate an offshore wind farm, do you think? Uh, or do you think we've got a pretty good sense of that now? You know, it's a pretty reasonably new technology. Where, where do you think we are in terms of the maturity and, 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 and knowledge of costs there? I think we're pretty far on the maturity and knowledge of cost uh, overall. I think there might have been, you know, in certain markets like an unhealthy uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, push on, you know, what returns justify what you have to, you know, be prepared for. But I actually do think that there's a pretty good grasp around what the cost of these things are. Um, but, uh, but of course, uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say, you know, in certain markets, uh, also from our chair, you know, we, the returns have at least moved to a level where it's difficult for somebody like us to, uh, to, to be involved in the long-term ownership of these things. Yeah. Okay. And is that is a corollary? You think that that sometimes you to win the auction, you do you know slightly less investment that you might not you might otherwise have, or you'll seek ways to reduce the cost of these things when that's not necessarily in society's best interests. No, um, I guess there's a uh, there's a limit of that, but I guess that is also an industry developing, and then because it's developing so fast, sometimes you know there will be you know people will have done it too much or not right. But there is, I think, that's a healthy dynamic for society in having competition where you know you know the gold plating is you know chopped slowly off one by one, and you end up figuring out you know what is the right you know price versus quality, and then sometimes you have removed a little bit too much quality, and you need to add some price back, but. That I think that is a learning feedback loop that has happened in all industries, which will continue to happen here. But I still think in the bigger scheme of things, of the point, you know, we bought it by Rostel and so forth. I, I still think in the bigger scheme of things, it is small compared to the returns being made by them along the way and the returns made in the industry overall. But, but of course, you know, if you have banked to the floor and every cost going forward and priced that in, then at some point in time, there will be some projects that are going to, 
struggle a little bit more on their profitability until the market adjusts back again. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the Dutch auctions are a good example where they've, and I think I, I detect a lot of frustration in the industry, which is a sort of they've capped bids at zero. You can't go any lower. And then it just no. becomes a beauty contest of, you know, g- government deciding who wins. And I think there's a lot of yeah. people who sort of say, well, this is not enough. This is not a healthy market. Uh, healthy no, market. I, 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 would- think, I think we, we agree with that. Yeah, interesting. And you you know, counter example is is Portuguese solar, uh, which said, right, you know, you're gonna have to pay us if you want to connect to the grid and take merchant risk. And uh, it was actually pretty successful in terms of raising revenue and seeing how low costs could go for solar in in in, yeah. in Portugal at least. Another phenomenon of global renewables investing is it seems to me at least, less than there was, but there's a premium attached to being international. So you you know you you um you know, if you're a one or a two country utility doing very similar things to one that's operating across Europe or indeed across the Atlantic, there's a higher multiple attributed. Do you think it's do you think it's right to attribute a higher multiple and a higher valuation to that sort of geographic diversity? You know the most common explanation is it's about scale and it's about you know the energy transition is taking place everywhere and you and you just got more upside that way. Um, do you think it's justified? I think it's justified. I think it's a matter of, I think it's scale. And I think, you know, seeing an industry moving so fast in different markets where it happens differently and the consequences are and bringing those learnings into other markets, I think is hugely valuable for making better risk-adjusted returns. And then I think there's also arguably, uh, you know, uh, diversification benefits achieved by being a truly global investor that you will not achieve, you know, within Europe or within America only, where, you know, things are much more correlated. Yeah, interesting. And so is a corollary that you see consolidation globally in the power generation space? Yeah, I think it's likely. I mean, it's not something I've spent too much time on. You know, yeah. we're, we're more on the project side and less on the, less on the, on the you know, uh, uh, acquisition of companies. Uh, uh, it's not really our bread and butter. We're more on the project side. But I, I think it will happen to some extent because more wants to get, you know, global. But at the same time, it's challenging to run a global organization. So it's... Uh, that's a, that I think that's for and against. It depends a little bit from a, from a, from market to market, from company to company. Could you say a little bit about that dis- the diseconomies of scale with international expansion? I mean, it, to me, it looks like CIP's done a done a pretty spectacular job in in this. You're you're in New York doing business, um, having started your career in Europe. I, I look again at my home state. You know, there's a. You know, there's, there's a sort of star of the south is the project. There's a visitor center. People turn up, and there's sort of engagement with the community and these sorts of things. It, it doesn't necessarily feel like CIP is an outsider here. But do you detect diseconomies of scale from not having been on the ground for a long period of time, not being able to go to politicians and say we can help with your kind of social objectives as well, and and we're invested in the community. No, no, I, I don't. I, I don't think we feel that directly. You obviously have to be a little bit careful when you enter, right? I mean, uh, yeah, you know that in markets, you know, you know, stuff will first float float around in the in the, in the market you're in, right? And then it starts to float out of the market. So you have to be careful in, in when you enter, right? And then I think the key to success is to you know have uh, people that know each other really, really well that are placed around the world, right? For you to actually be able to do it without having you know massive uh, you know synergies in trying to you know uh, you know attack multiple markets and regions at the same time yeah yeah interesting 
Okay, excellent. Well, that's a good note to, to move to the, what is always my final segment of the show, uh, where we talk about a, a number of concepts. And I ask you whether you think they're overrated or underrated. Um, feel free to have a short answer. Feel free to have a, have, a, have a long answer as well. So the first concept is uh, the role of the power sector in driving decarbonisation. You know, is it, uh, is it going to be electrons that power the world or is it going to be a, a broader set of, uh, set of energy vectors? Uh, so do you think the role of the power sector in decarbonisation is overrated or underrated? I think it's what we talked about it before. I think it's I think it's underrated, right? Because I think power will then be used to create other fuels that will then help to power the world and then merge to different markets. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's getting harder to say it's underrated. Uh, you know, I, th- I think the IEA came out with something talking about you know seventy percent of primary energy being power. And so, I th- I, like, if that was published a few years ago, the number wouldn't have been that high. Uh, oh, sure. So, I think it's I think I think it's harder and harder to be underrated. Is, is would be would be my one nuance on that when it comes to the to the, to the, to the power sector. Yeah, but of course, it depends on what benchmark you're measuring towards. Maybe I'm measuring towards the wrong benchmark. That could be the case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Um, yeah. uh, okay. Corporate PPAs as a route to market and risk sharing device for renewables investors globally. Do you think the role of corporate PPAs, that is, someone like you who's developing an asset, selling on a typically on a long term basis, need not be direct to a corporate, uh, you know, an Apple or a Deutsche Bahn or someone like that. Do you think the role of corporate PPAs is overrated or underrated? I probably think it's overrated. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, excellent. The okay, so we've talked we've talked about this one. I think you've said you know you've said your answer on this one. But I'll go through it anyway. The future of regulated vertically integrated utilities in the US. Uh, can I assume your answer is overrated? I think so, but I have no clue how it's going to play out. Yeah, uh, and finally. Uh, philosophically, humanity's ability to keep global warming under two degrees, which is a which is about uh, by what the scientists tell me, net zero by about twenty seventy. I think we'll figure it out. Okay, okay, good. An optimistic note to finish on. So I'll, I'll conclude it there. As always, great to hear your well-informed perspectives, Henrik. Uh, so Henrik Tordra, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak. Thanks, John. Uh, it was a pleasure being on, uh, on the podcast with you. That was John Federson, co-founder and chief executive at Aurora, speaking to Henrik Tordrup, partner at Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>